Hello and welcome back to Designers on the Mic. I know it's been a while, but we're back, and this time we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Scout Bloom. Dr. Bloom is the designer behind Rising Waters, which covers the 1927 flooding of the Mississippi Delta. We, of course, talk about the game, Dr. Bloom's experience with the Zenobia Awards, her work as a professor of history and as an environmental historian, and have also talked about the importance of games in portraying certain messages. It's worth noting that this interview was recorded on October 6th, and this game is currently a live Kickstarter project running through November 3rd, 2022. Sit back and enjoy this interview. I had a lot of fun with it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Enjoy. Dr. Bloom, thank you for joining me tonight. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So, Dr. Bloom, you are a professor of history at Troy University. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. So, before we dive into your game and the interview, I have to ask, have you have you ever been to Lake Eufaula? I have not. <laughs> no. Okay. I've so, never been to Lake Eufaula. It is a couple hours east, maybe an hour east of Troy. Um, and I grew up all my summers and a lot of Christmases. Uh, in Eufaula, Alabama. Wow, what a small world. <laughs> well, I guess. <laughs> it is a little far away. I don't know. Maybe the I have, I've driven through Eufaula, but I've okay. never been to Lake Eufaula. Okay. Yeah, and then my, my mom's family ended up moving up to, to Huntsville uh, years later, which is a lot ah, closer for us. So. My brother was born in Decatur. So okay. Right next door. Sure, exactly. Well, as, as, uh, as much as we could. We're not here to talk about small or large cities in, in <laughs> Alabama. We're here to talk about your game and, and all your other projects. And we're talking about rising waters. And I could talk about it, but I think it's best to get it from you. What uh, What's Rising Waters? Tell us a little bit about it. So Rising Waters is a game about the 1927 Mississippi flood. Um, and It is being published by Central Michigan, and they're basically sort of trying out a new concept. Um, They're developing historical games that are accurate historically and that that are useful for the classroom. So they're not games where they just sort of have a historical theme pasted onto them, but, you know, they are made by historians and peer-reviewed by historians um, to give a more accurate historical presentation. So the game itself is about the 1927 flood, which was a huge uh, environmental disaster um, in, in the Mississippi Valley. Um, the players are uh, playing the game from the perspective of African-Americans uh, in the region. And so basically they are battling nature um, you know, with the floodwaters coming in, they're trying to shore up land and trying to make sure that that areas don't get flooded. But they're also having to battle racism um, in the area um, through things that the the white landowners would do. Um, and of course, racism was a very big everyday part of life in Mississippi for African Americans at the time. So basically, it's it's a cooperative set collection game. Um, where you are looking at, you know, how this disaster affected people, um, but also how these people had the strength and the courage and the agency to be able to survive 
um, uh, through the crisis. So it's it's really also a game about empowerment and strength of the Black community in Mississippi. I I want to eventually get to the Zenobia Awards, of course. But oh, sure. I you know I come from this well one just general board gaming and then. I call them historical board games to be all encompassing, but in short, they're they're war games and they may be historically accurate, but there always isn't a message. And if the message may be, this is how this alternative battle may be fought, or this is how this model, this hypothetical conflict could be modeled. Right. And not to say that those aren't important and, and don't serve a purpose, but there seem to be very few games that have a not a not a theme but carry such an important message was that something when you when you set out in the design process did you want to have a message and and teach a lesson behind it because it it very much seems to me that rising waters does have a message behind it oh yeah sure i mean so i use games in the classroom quite a bit to teach um and one of the things that i noticed with is that there were a lot of gaps Um, and there were a lot of gaps, you know, for games in the 1920s. Um, you know, when I teach that period, I didn't have a lot of games to use, but more than that, um, you know, one of the things that I personally, as a historian and a designer wanted to do was to try to address some of the deficiencies within gaming about, you know, the, the lack of diversity in, Um, you know, the perspectives that you can play from, but also the lack of diversity just in game design, Um, you know, who's doing the designing and who's doing the illustrations. So, yeah, I mean, that was a very conscious thing on my part to want to bring this different kind of perspective. And not only that, but to also bring um, for the African-American, you know, community to bring a sense of of agency for them, you know, a sense of power, um, and not show them just as victims and, you know, that they were just getting beaten up by the weather and beaten up by white people. That, that was definitely not what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted there to be, um, you know, playing from this perspective, I wanted people to get a sense of the, the agency and the, the, the level of community, um, that was, that was in the, in Mississippi at the time. So, yeah, I mean that was a, a very conscious effort to sort of have this kind of message because it's it's their messages that I would teach in class and that I would want students to to be more aware of in class. I guess what I, I guess is someone who's had game. I guess the short is that games were not used in my education and especially not in in higher education. Before we talk more about your game, how what are su- some successes you've had using games in class? Oh gosh, um, I think. Well, I mean, they're like academic, but then there are also other kind of things that that games can do. I mean, I think one of the things that they do very clearly is they they let the class sort of relax a bit and they let the class they let the kids be um, uh, sort of get to know each other a bit better. Um, and have a little fun with some of the material. And I think that that's important, right? I, I mean, you know, you want them to be learning things, but for them to be engaged and and having fun, I think that that's important as well. So I think games can do that. I think what games can also do is, you know, one of the things that I do in class is is we talk about the games 
as choices, right? You know, like if you're watching a historical movie, you can talk about the choices that the director made, like why mm-hmm. did they do this or why did they do that? But we do that with games as well, right? What did what did this game leave out or what did this game uh, include from the historical um, incident? So we kind of talk about the history, but then we also talk about the choices that the designer made and why they made them. And that can really get us into really kind of deeper analytical kind of thinking about how the game is an artifact of the time period that it was created so that they, the kids can look at it and say, oh, you know, I I can understand that, you know, this designer made the game this way because of X, Y, Z that was going on at the time period. So, I mean, for, for me, I use games in multiple different ways um, to help with engagement, but also to help with critical and analytical thinking um, and to get them thinking about, um, you know, these kind of sources as um, artifacts, basically. So uh, we use them in a whole bunch of different ways in the classroom. Interesting. Are there any, I mean, obviously there are educational games. There's also mass for the mass appeals. Are there any specific games that you've used in, have have been well received that our listeners may, may have heard of. Oh, I mean, sure. outside of maybe something like really well known. Um. Well, I mean, like we'll do we do games like in early on the semester because a lot of my students, you know, they're familiar with video games, but they're not real familiar with um, uh, board games. So I tend to start them off with something kind of straightforward, and this is when I'm doing my um, history through games class, which is a class that I do. Um, we do Settlers of Catan. We talk about the building blocks of civilization and we play Settlers of Catan and we talk about what kind of building blocks that game included and what it didn't include and why, um, that we use Dominion. We've used Ticket to Ride. Um, we've used, what other kinds of games have we used? I'm looking around my (laughs) office at the moment. (laughs) Um, we have used uh, Puerto Rico. Sure. We have used a lot of other different games as well. And the point with some of the games is not necessarily that they are good representations of history. Sometimes it's okay if they're bad representations of history. You sure. know, one of the things that we do with Puerto Rico is we talk about you know, why did the game use the use quote unquote colonists as labor? Why did they skirt the issue of, of slavery? Right. So it, it, when we use games in the classroom there, they don't necessarily have to be historically accurate. Um, and sometimes that's a good teaching tool as well, but there are also times when you want a game to have relevant historical messages too. Um, and hopefully that's what rising waters is going to do. It's going to be a good play experience, but it's also going to teach some relevant lessons. So it's not just the instructor saying, Oh, this is, this is a game that doesn't do history. Well, (laughs) you you want some that do do history. Well, I guess. Absolutely. What you mentioned the, the importance of diversity and not only in game design, but also illustration. And so I went to a small school in Topeka, Kansas. And so when I saw that Aaron Douglas served as inspiration behind some of the artwork, I mean, the artwork behind the cards is, is fascinating, but, and I think you've said this, the, the art serves a bigger role than just being 
great visual pieces. Right. And so what, what role do you see the art? And you had two artists involved on the project. Is that right? Yes, we did. Um, and it was really important to me that the rest of the team include um, members from the community. Um, so we have Lamaro Smith and Micaiah um, Alexander, who are um, just fantastic, creative, wonderful people who are doing the art for us. But yeah, I mean, we wanted the art to sort of help find a a, a place for for teachers to begin to talk about art of the time period of the 1920s. And of course, the Harlem Renaissance was going on at that point where we have this huge flowering of literature and poetry and all kinds of things coming out of the black community in, in Harlem. So we wanted, and we didn't want Lamaro to just duplicate Harlem Renaissance art, but we wanted his, we wanted to be able to have some sort of points of comparison and, and linkages between his art and what was, you know, what was happening in the twenties. So the art itself um, provides a kind of um, a, an educational uh, point of view as well, uh, or an educational sort of uh, lesson. I specifically did not want a super realistic style. You know, we could have gone that way, I suppose. But I love Lamaro's art, and you know, the the art of the Harlem Renaissance was not realistic. Right. I mean, if you look at some of those images that these artists were putting out, they were, you know, very influenced by art of the time period. They were um, much more representational. They were drawing on African art and, you know, surrealism and all of these other kinds of things that were coming together at that point in time to really challenge what the meaning of art was and what art looked like. So I was really happy with how Lamaro did the art and, you know, that it's a little bit more representational rather than really realistic. Um, but he just did a fantastic job and he's a fantastic person to, to work with. So we've been very grateful for, for him. Well, definitely. As, as an outsider, I, I would agree. I mean, the art is, is really, is really stunning. And, oh, well, thank and, you. Good. And impressive. Certainly, certainly uh, has, has, Great, great eye appeal. So I, I want to backtrack a little bit because we, we mentioned in the beginning and we've had both Sebastian Bay and Volkerunke on the show um, who were involved in some form with Z the Zenobia Awards, which this right. game started as a Zenobia Awards project. Is that correct? Well, it actually started the year before and oh, okay. I entered it into the um, board game design workshop contest. Um and it was at a really preliminary stage at that point. And when I got done with that, I heard about Zenobia, which of course is sort of right up the alley of what this game is and what I was wanting to do. So I entered it into to that contest. But I don't think the game would have been ready for Zenobia unless I had done the, the previous one. Mm. Um, but yeah, so um, I mean, Zenobia was just, you know, the the, the focus on that contest on having historical games have historical, you know, reality behind them was just exactly what, you know, we were looking for. So I was really excited to be a part of that contest and um, to be able to get the feedback that we did. And it was just, it was organized really well and, um, you know, just a really great experience, I think. Did you work uh, specifically with one mentor or, you know, the website lists several consultants and mentors. Were, were the projects kind of paired off or did you consult with all 
a bunch of different mentors that were listed? Um, no, I mean, I had one mentor. His name is Pius. Um, and he is just fantastic. And, um, you know, he was um, really, really supportive of the game and gave some amazing feedback. So we had, I had one mentor that I worked with. Um, but then there were also times where the um, contest organizers did play tests of the game um, and gave feedback and they went over the rules and, you know, did a lot of other kinds of things too. It seems intimidating to me for a design process to be, here's what I have. And I know you just said you've gone through one, one kind of first draft or, or first step, but then now that is like, I have tons of design ideas in my head and they'll never come to fruition. <laughs> but then the thought of like submitting them to this panel of all of these different people that are known through the board gaming world for different roles. You have designers, you have media people, all these different people involved. Was that, was that intimidating to, to put your game out there in the waters to, for immediate feedback like that? Um, no, you know, I didn't really find it intimidating. <laughs> I, you know, I kind of like the sense of, you know, a bit of competition, but sure. mainly I think, you know, the board game design workshop, the one that I had done before, I'd done that a couple of times before with other games and had had such a positive experience with it. You know, I think that was what was sort of coloring my vision of what a contest was going to be. And, you know, Zenobia was just, I don't know, it was just an absolutely amazing, very, very positive experience. But no, I wasn't really... I wasn't really worried about it, I suppose. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I liked where the game was. I thought the game was strong, but I also felt very strongly that I needed feedback on it. And, you know, I think part of the reason why I wasn't really concerned about it is that this is a very normal part of academia. You know, when we submit things to be published, and I've had quite a few things published, but we when we submit things to be published, you send them in and then they like tell you if it's going to get published or if you need to revise it or if it's not going to get published. So you get feedback on this stuff. And so for me and for academics, that's a real normal part of publishing is sending something in and getting feedback on it. And sometimes the feedback is ugly and mean <laughs> and sometimes the feedback is really positive um, and constructive. So to me, I, I guess, in my mindset, it's just more of sort of a normal process of of getting something done, I suppose. Before we shift gears, just to sure. a little bit more on the history side and I guess what you do for your day job, is there anything else that you want to plug or, or mention about uh, Rising Waters? For me, what's been really neat about the game, and this might sound a little weird coming from the designer of the game, <laughs> but the the game has a lot of replayability. I don't know how many times I've played it. I've probably played it a hundred or so times at least um, in playtesting. But every single time I play the game, it's very different, right? You have just incredibly different situations. Like sometimes you just, it's, it's horrible and the flooding is just massive all at once. Sometimes the flooding is a little less um, and the, the racism of the white landowners is just over the top. I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting to me that you know the the game has a high amount of replayability and you get a very different story every time um and that to me was very important that the that the students who played it have a sort of narrative that once they finish playing they can talk about you know oh my gosh you know we really 
had a lot of flooding at the beginning or something. So um, I think I think one thing that, that I like about the game myself is just the replayability of it. Well, that's great. I love I love games that that tell a story, and I think yes. there are that can be found in every sphere of board gaming and games that do it well. I mean, war games can do it and, and card games can do it. And, you know, dry, old, dusty Euro games can do it. And that's when games are my favorites, when you walk away and they've told a great story, regardless of the gameplay. Um, right. And I think another thing that I, I really uh, enjoyed and that was very important to me was that the game be a cooperative game. You know, for me, it's more interesting when you're playing a game, when you're working with everyone to kind of, um, you know, come to a conclusion, you know, when you're working together. And so that was important to me. And especially because that kind of community sort of involvement and participation was something that I wanted to get across within the African-American community at the time as well, too. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that the aspect of it being cooperative was important, too. Well, great. I I hope the project has all kinds of success. We will, of course, uh, spread the word. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, oh, there's print and play options as well yeah. as um, a fully produced uh, game with with the awesome art and all the fun stuff. I was when I was browsing through the Kickstarter. I and I understand this is not a role playing game in the sense of Dungeons and Dragons or or anything else that I may play, <laughs> but. Can you can you talk at all about reacting to the past? Is I I saw that you're active in that. What is a sure. a historically based role playing? Is it an exercise or? So um, reacting to the past is base. It's a whole pedagogy. Um, it comes out of Bernard Mark Carnes is the was the instigator of it. Um, it, it is a wonderful massive supportive community of educators at the college level, mostly. Um, What reacting does is it takes a moment in time where there is some kind of conflict going on. So there's some kind of controversy or conflict or at some kind of turning point in history. And what you do is the students get sort of a summary of that uh, time period or that event. And then up to a certain point. And then the students are assigned roles of real historical characters in that conflict. So, um, and they're given some information about the role and they're also given some documents, real primary documents to read. And then the students then have to play through what they think would happen in that real historical situation. So they're taken, they've got real history up to a point and then they know their roles and they have to play through the um, uh, rest of the scenario, I guess. Um, the games that Reacting has come up with are just really cool and very, very, um, you know, good for students to develop speaking and writing skills, um, but also for them to think about developing empathy for historical characters and situations. Um, one of the most important things for me is that they begin to learn that history, you know, isn't set in stone, that, that things go a certain way because people do certain things at certain times. And oftentimes that's kind of a lesson that students don't quite understand, you know, oh, it happened like that because it had to happen like that. Well, that's absolutely not what is the case, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, they play through these situations and they learn that, oh, if so-and-so doesn't show up, then things can go completely differently. Or, you know, if someone is very convincing about something, then maybe everyone will vote with them and decide to do something that really didn't happen. So I think reacting games, uh, you know, and, and the community itself has just been really important to me in it's sort of where I started using game design and, and games in the classroom with these role-playing games, um, historical, historically based role-playing games. So they've just, they've been important to my thinking as a, as a designer, as well as someone who uses games in the classroom, I guess. It, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I had a, a history teacher in, in high school that, you know, we played what was called the war game. And the more I've got into gaming, I'm convinced it's just a very toned down version of diplomacy that he had us play when, yeah, he really didn't want to do anything, and it's <laughs> far <laughs> superior, and it sounds way more interesting and rewarding than uh, Mr. Logue's war game. In, well, in uh, reacting can be pretty intense. Um, sure, yeah, you know, I, I bet it, so. It, the The kids can really get into it, you know, like where they're playing it outside of class too. You know, they kind of continue with their <laughs> roles outside of class, so it's it's a it can be a really neat experience. Um, Sometimes you need to scaffold, which just means you sort of need to help them with the skills before you get to the game, depending on the skill level of the class. But it's it's a it's a neat experience. Yeah. And it's one that, you know, you kind of hope that students will remember and take away with them. Talk to me, I guess, a little bit about and this is this is a broad question and I, I apologize, but it's just because it's not something I, I know about. But the the study of in, environment in, in history, um, you know, I was. I, I was a history major and that, that just, that just wasn't a thing. And obviously <laughs> history is so broad, but I guess talk to me about the study of environmental disasters and, and I guess just in the environment in general and, and how that goes hand in hand with history. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I am by training a, an environmental historian and basically what that means is we study how humans interact with nature over time. So environmental history can include all kinds of different things. I mean, one of the things I look at are environmental disasters. I've done a book on Love Canal, which was a um, man-made environmental disaster in the late 70s and and early 80s um, with chemicals showing up in people's backyards. Um, This is a natural disaster with sort of man-made components, I guess, with the 1927 flood. So it can cover stuff like that, um, you know, like the history of pollution or the history of the environmental movement. Um, environmental history, though, can also talk about a history of ideas, um, like how, how have people thought about wilderness over time? How has that changed over time? Um, how has it been different for African-Americans to interact with, with the environment than a white person? Um, you know, so, uh, environmental history is a very, very broad, can be a very, very broad, uh, historical sort of, um, area to get into. Um, you know, you can talk about the development of cities as environmental history. You can talk about, um, you know, infrastructure and, uh, you can talk about the development of parks. You can talk about how people relate to animals, um, you know, pesticides. It's it's a it's a really vibrant sort of field, I guess. That's fascinating, and and I imagine that that's also 
probably going to play an important role. Uh, you know, whatever. I, I just see that being the study of our reaction to climate change just seems like that will be an important topic or an important, you know, in however many years. Uh, oh, absolutely. Time. You know, one of my uh, my real research, I guess, um, you know, I'm I'm looking at um, the historical background of kids' environmental activism. So basically the history of the youth climate movement now is what I do my academic research on. So, and yeah, I mean, I certainly think that how we're dealing with and responding to climate change is going to be a big sort of issue. And it, and it is now. A lot of historians are are working on these kinds of things and also tracing the roots of climate change. You know, it didn't just start recently, sure. but, you know, people talk about even back in colonial America, how there were decisions that were being made um, that really begin to influence the, the path that we took. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a very relevant field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Bloom, thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go. Sure. I have some questions for you. Okay. <laughs> are, are you ready? I am ready. Okay. What's the first board game you purchased? Ever? Well, let's just say like modern board game, I guess. First modern board game that I purchased. Goodness, that's a good question. Catan, maybe, I guess? Sure. I'm not that was sure. my brother's. That was my intro to the hobby. My brother ah. bought it and then... What game's on your table right now? Uh, uh, Rising Waters. <laughs> Naturally, of course. <laughs> Favorite uh, topic to read about? Favorite topic to read about. I'm a big sci-fi fan and I love reading science fiction. Okay. What do you have a uh do you have a favorite sci-fi author? Uh Frank Herbert, probably. Or okay. um Ursula Le Guin. Oh, of course. Very good. Uh Roll Tide or War Eagle? Uh, neither. I oh, am okay. a Longhorn, Hook'em Horns. Oh, okay. <laughs> um favorite president? Truman, Harry Truman. Hey, I my my house is just down the road from his childhood home. Oh, um, favorite best city to get barbecue in? Austin, Texas. Okay, Salt Fair. Lake. There's a restaurant called the Salt Lake in Austin that is amazing. We still we order it still. Like when we have people over to watch the Longhorn games, we'll order Salt Lake barbecue from Austin. Wow. Uh, favorite period of history. The 1950s and the 1960s, I think. Okay. What are you reading next? Uh, just in general or like scholarly stuff? Uh, let's go for fun. I am reading um, a book called Six of Crows by Lee um, Bardugo. Yeah, Lee Bardugo. Um, she did um, Shadow and Bone, uh, the series that's on Netflix, but this is a different oh. a series. So it's called Six of Crows. It's more of a fantasy sort of thing. Okay. What's the what's the topic of the scholarly thing you're reading next? Um I am reading a book by um uh, a colleague called Toxic Debt and it's about the environmental justice movement in uh Detroit. If you could choose the topic of your next game design with that, without any limitations on the mechanics behind it or anything, but if you could choose any topic that you would design a game on, what would it be? Hmm. I I am working on a game um, about 
you mean a historical game or just in general? In general, but in general, um, I am working currently on a game about um, homeless pets and um, working them through a shelter to find homes for them. Um, yeah, I, I kind of have put that on the back burner while I've been working on rising waters, but it's a pretty, I really like it. And it's, it's, um, you know, getting close to being finished. If a historical topic, I think what I might want to do is a game about love canal, um, sort of the, the general features of, of love, love, of love canal. If you could meet and have dinner with any historical figure, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, wow. Thomas Jefferson, maybe. Um, who else? Yeah, I think I would I would like to have dinner with Thomas Jefferson. That would be very cool. Very nice. Alien or aliens? <laughs> um, aliens. Let's awesome. go for more than one. <laughs> <laughs> last great documentary you watched hmm last great documentary we watched a really cool one on surfing and they were i can't remember the name of it but it was about this man who was searching for like a hundred foot wave and who was um so, uh, surfing in portugal and this off the Atlantic Ocean. Wow, uh, it was it, it was interesting. Favorite historical site to visit? Monticello. Okay. Uh, favorite national park? Yes, hmm. that may be a national park site, but that's a good question. Um, Yosemite, I think. Okay. Uh, favorite TV show? that's a hard one (laughs) favorite tv show well i I think i'll probably go with um star trek strange new worlds right now oh nice okay favorite historical um class you took in college or i guess what favorite history class you took in college um i took a it was a survey class you know just one of the ones that the freshmen take uh-huh. And it was taught by a man named Clarence Lasby, who it turns out later was my advisor's on my advisor's committee. So it was sort of interesting connection. But Clarence Lasby was an amazing teacher and he would tell us these stories. And I just thought that this was so cool. He had interviewed President Truman and you know, he would tell us stories about talking to Truman and interviewing Truman. And I think that that was just something that was just very cool to me to hear, hear directly about someone who had talked to a president. Right. That was cool. And a, and probably even more so a a historical president. I mean, you know, my dad told me one time he was at a Texas A&M K state game in A&M and he saw Bush senior, walked by and he waved at him and that's not as interesting as saying that you've interviewed president Truman, obviously. (laughs) Um, what's your favorite board game? Pandemic. Okay. And I like wingspan too, but I think, um, pandemic is definitely, you know, one of my favorites and one that I will play a million times. I love Matt Leacock and uh, that game is just 
it's been an inspiration to me and it's it's very influential in a lot of my design work. Are you a big fan of the legacy games as well? Version? You know, I have not yet played any of the legacy Neither have games. I. Neither have I, I. I suffer from the fact that my husband does not like to play board games. Um, so it's sometimes, especially during the pandemic, it was a little hard for me to find people, you know, to sit around a table and play. Um, my son loves board games. Um, but of course he's 17 and is going in 20 million different directions. So. Sure. <laughs> Fair. Uh, outside your own, uh, favorite nonfiction book. Oh, favorite nonfiction book. Oh, goodness. This is horrible because I'm going to say something and then I'm going to have like <laughs> of course. a completely different reaction later. Um, favorite nonfiction book. Hmm. I don't know if I can answer that one. Again, I'm looking around my office. <laughs> um, I think, well, let me give you one that I read recently that I really, really enjoyed. Um, it's by a colleague of mine named Neil Marr, and it's called Apollo in the Age of Aquarius. And it's basically the story of the Apollo program and how NASA fit into the different social movements of the 60s and 70s. So it talks, Neil talks about how um, like NASA reacted to the women's movement and how NASA reacted to the environmental movement and the civil rights movement. So it's a really cool book that sort of integrates the study of the space program with what was going on during the, the 60s and 70s. It's a very cool book. Could you repeat the title again? Apollo in the Age of Aquarius. I wouldn't normally do this, but I, I feel like it's somewhat relevant. And sometime in my upcoming to read pile is a book called Cadillac Desert. And it just seems somewhat ah. relevant. Are you a fan of that? Is that is that worth yeah. picking up for my next read? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a good book. Okay. Well, thank, that's all I have. You can, you can okay. relax. The, the, hot, <laughs> the hot seat is over. Those were some hard questions. <laughs> I, I, always, I always find them fun. Um, oh, they are fun. I, I like, I think you learn a lot about people from some of those quick little questions. Yeah. And pick up great recommendations as well. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Um, Apollo and the Age of Aquarius sounds very interesting and is now on my Goodreads winter. Neil, Neil is a really good writer too. So he's, he's engaging and it's, it's, you know, easy to follow. It's not an academic book that's like jargony and, you know, hard to read. It's a, it's a easy to read book. Sure. Well, thank you. I guess the one last thing before I go, uh, if you're you're on Twitter, if, if people want to find you, correct? Yes. Uh, just at Scout Bloom. All one word. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Best of luck on the project. This runs until November. I should have checked. It's early November, right? Yeah. I, it started this past Tuesday, so I think it's November 3rd or 4th, somewhere around in there. November 3rd. So you have November until November 3rd to go check out this awesome game, Rising Waters, a board game about the 1927 Mississippi flood, as well as Dr. Bloom's book. Is it just Love Canal? or? It's called um, uh, Love Canal Revisited. Love Canal Revisited. There you go. Okay. Well, have a great night, and thank you again. Thank you, Matt. It was uh, good to talk to you. You as well.